lovely Maple Grove, Minnesota, and SixFootMama.com. This is Still Growing with Jennifer Ebling. Still Growing is a gardening podcast dedicated to helping you and your garden grow. Hi there, everyone, and welcome to Still Growing, and thank you for listening. I'm your host, Jennifer Ebling. Today's show is all about basil. I'm calling it basil mania. It's my all-time favorite edible to grow in the garden. In fact, my first purpose for digging in the dirt every spring is to plant my basil crop, and this year was no exception. Many gardeners associate the smell of basil with summer. Just by rubbing a basil leaf to release its earthy, rich fragrance with hints of both mint and clove make me remember teaching my children how to harvest basil out on the deck where our kitchen garden is located. In fact, one of the first recipes that my kids memorized by heart is how to make basil pesto. Now, my family is definitely not alone in our love for basil. Without a doubt, it's among the most popular culinary herbs. So what makes basil such a hot commodity in the garden? As the classic herb of summer, basil is a very well-rounded winner, from being a wonderful companion plant, cut flower, easy propagator, bountiful producer, successful herb for preservation, a distinct aromatic addition to perfumes, a natural pest repellent, and absolutely amazing in the kitchen when used with an infinite constellation of recipes. Today's deep dive into basil is my way of playing matchmaker between you and the king of herbs, also known as basil. If you've never grown basil or cooked with basil, I want to make the introduction for you. And if you're already head over heels with basil like I am, I want to give you even more reasons to keep your passion for basil alive. Basil mania, that's the topic of today's show, and it's coming up after an update on the listener community for the show and this week's Garden News Roundup. But first, of course, I'd like to start out by saying thanks for listening to the show this week. I know there are many great gardening podcasts out there. I hope you check them out. But I'm sincerely honored that you're spending some time here listening to the Still Growing Podcast. Now, for this show, there's a way that you can have an even deeper interaction on the subject of gardening. You can join the listener community. It's a free private Facebook group that I host for gardeners of all skill levels and locations, and you can find it on Facebook by typing in the name of our group into the search bar. Just type in Still Growing Podcast Group, and the listener community will show up at the top of the search results in Facebook, and then you just click on it and request to join, and then we'll admit you into the group. Now, there are many great reasons to join our Facebook group. First of all, you can make your Facebook feed a little more interesting. In fact, did you know that you can kind of customize your Facebook feed just by joining groups in areas that you're interested in? So if you like gardening and you want to see more gardening posts, then look for gardening groups on Facebook. So the Still Growing Podcast group is just one of those groups, but you can also search for other You can just even have a general search for the term gardening and see what pops up in your area or give your state name and then type in 
the word gardening and see if there aren't gardening groups in your state or in your city as well. You can join those groups as well. And all of that will show up in your Facebook feed. So instead of just having posts from family and friends and probably some ads thrown in there, now you'll also get to see posts from these various groups that you're in. And if you target the groups that you're most interested in, the groups that you have the most passion about, I think you'll find that your feed is overall more beneficial to you. You know, when it comes to the Still Growing Podcast, the Facebook group is the only place I go to pick lucky listeners for any giveaways that are offered by guests of the show. And another wonderful benefit of being in our podcast group is that you get a chance to interact with guests who have been on the show. In fact, every time someone is a guest on the Still Growing Podcast, they're invited to be part of the group, to interact with listeners of the show, and it's one of the coolest things that I envisioned when I thought about creating a Facebook group, a listener community for this show. I wanted to give you a way to connect with the great guests that have shared their time and their knowledge with us, and they regularly post things in the group to help you. So that's a wonderful benefit. Then, of course, everything that I share in the group ties back to the original mission of the show, which is to help you and your garden grow. So everything I post is curated with you in mind. And then finally, don't forget that it's free and easy to join. So it costs you nothing. And all you have to do is the next time you're in Facebook, just head on up to the search bar and type in still growing podcast group and you can be part of the group. This week, I'd like to welcome these new listeners who joined the Still Growing Podcast group, Kelly Fialos, Natasha Tweedle, Michael Todd Pierce, Michelle George, Carolyn and Randy Levine, Pien Steffs, Jody Cunningham, Lisa Grams, Tamara Cullen, Lindsay Heineke, Claire Foley, Julie Nambiar, Marion Yu, Alice Hesselroad, Jay Vose, and Artie Porter. Welcome, all of you new listeners, to the Still Growing Podcast group. And as usual, there were many great posts from listeners this week. In fact, Michael Lockstamfor shared an excellent podcast by Freakonomics Radio about lawns in America. Did you know there were 40.5 million acres of lawn in the United States? So clearly, lawns are still the most grown crop in the United States. And then I found another resource about this issue, lawns. And it was an article by Scientific American, and it was posted earlier this month. Anyhow, this was a great topic brought up by Michael. And then, of course, there are always beautiful pictures and videos that listeners share of their garden. Laura Hatt shared gorgeous pictures of her South Carolina garden including a video, and she's modeling it after a garden plan that she had seen on Mother Earth News. I loved the layout of her garden. Listener Julie Lang shared her garden with us. She is doing raised bed gardening in galvanized steel tubs, and it's just absolutely adorable. She posted, this is my happy place, and I replied, I could be happy here too. It looks fantastic. And then Deb Ackerman chimed in that she's doing the same thing. She shared a picture of her galvanized tub. And then that led to a discussion about where are you getting your tubs? So that was fun. And by the way, don't do what Deb did and drop one of those big tubs on your shin. She said it hurts for a long time after that. 
Amber Gooden of Lolo, Montana, joined our group, and she's been a great contributor since she joined. She shared a beautiful picture of her out-of-control irises. And then she started a conversation around creating a cutting garden and including flowers for butterflies and bumblebees. So it was interesting to read what people were chiming in, their suggestions for flowers and ornamentals that attract pollinators. That was great to see. John Lowen out of Ontario, Canada, shared pictures of his garden. It's a beautiful pastoral scene. He's got a gorgeous place to garden. Sue Luftig shared pictures of her iris in bloom. I shared an image of a gorgeous Colorado violet and white columbine I'd seen when I was out shopping this week. And then there were a lot of posts that were just giving some listener love to the podcast, and they were great. Restu Mayuni Reinhardt just shared that she had found the podcast and she was so happy to join the group. She gardens in Zone 7, just outside of Washington, D.C., and she shared some beautiful pictures of her garden. Laura Hatt said, thanks for the ad. I just found the podcast and I'm starting from the beginning. I love listening to the show while I'm in the garden and the poems at the end are great. Thank you. So if you haven't listened to some of the earlier episodes that I did when I was first starting the show, I would almost always put a little secret Easter egg at the end of those early shows. And it was usually me or the kids or some combination reading some garden poetry. So if you haven't checked out earlier episodes, you can go ahead and check that out. Listen to those old episodes and hopefully laugh a little bit as you get to listen to me and the kids read some poetry to you. And then Amber Gooden chimed in and she said, I have to say that I love this group. I typically listen to Pandora at work and get bored with it and have always been into gardening and now have a house with a space to do so. I found the podcast and I quickly listened to all of them. I love how friendly, responsive, and helpful everyone in this group is. Thank you for the ad. Anyway, thanks to those listeners for their great contributions and their positive feedback on the show. I just love our listener community for the show. It's fun for me to be able to interact with you and then see posts from people who share a passion for gardening and have a curiosity to learn more. So come on over, check it out. Come hang out with us. Please don't be shy. Even if you've been listening to the show for a while and have yet to join the listener community, just check it out. The next time you're on Facebook, it's really so super simple to be part of the group. And I would love for you to join for free. The next time you're on Facebook, just type in Still Growing Podcast Group into the search bar and then request to join. I look forward to meeting you in the group. Just a reminder that the show has a phone number. It's 865-333-GROW. And there are two reasons to be calling the show this month. And they are first and foremost to share your memory garden with me. So if you've created a memorial garden for a loved one who's passed away or some type of memorial garden, it can even be for a pet or a friend, just some type of memorial garden that you've created, I'd love for you to call the show and share the story of your memory garden with us, how you created it, what you did. Just give us a little overview of that particular garden. And then the other topic area where I would love for you to call in is to share your favorite garden recipes. Of course, now that June is upon us, 
we're digging back through our recipe boxes and we're pulling out all of those wonderful things that we like to make with our garden produce. And I'd love to hear some of your favorite garden recipes. So go ahead and give the show a call, 865-333-GROW or 865-333-4769. Share your memory garden or your favorite garden recipes with us. All right, now it's time for the Garden News Roundup. This is a curated group of posts and articles that I have shared over the week with the listener community in the free Facebook group, the Still Growing Podcast Group. And it's made up of about a dozen different segments from updates on past guests to articles featuring fascinating folks in the world of horticulture culture that I'd love to chat with. And that's something that I call the dream guest segment. I also cover news and information on special topic areas like sustainability and science. And then the other segments are really designed to honor the commitment of the show to helping you and your garden grow. And they are the how-to DIY, the continuing ed segment, the plant spotlight, shopping, recipes, inspiration, and quotables. Now, what's nice about this for you is that you can stay pretty abreast of the news in horticulture and gardening just by listening to this part of the show each week. And you can easily check out these curated articles and posts for yourself because I share all of them with the listener community in the free Facebook group, the Still Growing Podcast Group. So if you hear something and want to read the full article, there's no need to take notes or track down links. Just head over to the group and join, you'll get all of this content for free. All right, first up is an update on our past guest, Deborah Madison. Of course, Deborah was featured in episode 533 with her fabulous book, Vegetable Literacy. Anyway, she was recently featured on the website cleanplates.com. And the article was called How to Cook Vegetables Like a Top Chef. This article is all about how to enjoy your vegetables more. And the one that Deborah recommended that really caught my attention was how to cook with asparagus. Deborah says, put an egg on it. And here's what the article says. While those first stalks of spring asparagus need little more than a drizzle of oil and a sprinkle of salt, it's easy to jazz them up. Madison likes to do so with a rustic take on classic polonaise. Poach, roast, or grill asparagus, then dress it while still warm with good olive oil, sea salt, and freshly ground pepper. Toast a piece of ciabatta bread and tear it into shards. Make a vinaigrette with red wine vinegar, a little mustard, salt, and more olive oil. Cook an egg until the yolk is set but not hard. Then peel and chop it. Lay the asparagus on a platter. Cover it with the chopped egg and toast shards. Then spoon the vinaigrette all over. Artichokes are also good this way, Madison notes. Doesn't that sound great? Anyway, the whole article was fantastic. So go ahead and check that out. And then guest Megan Kane of episode 557. Megan is the creative vegetable gardener. She shared a post with our listener community that says, what happens when a plant bolts? And here's what she wrote. In most gardening climates, there's a transition period when the cool temperatures of spring start to give way to the warmer days of summer. For those of us who love summer, it's a time to rejoice. Our favorite season of the year has finally arrived. We revel in the heat and the sun. But for those of us who prefer cooler temperatures, we might start to get a little cranky with the arrival of hotter days. 
and vegetables have similar preferences. And then she goes on to write, bolting occurs with early spring vegetables like arugula, spinach, radishes, salad mixes, cilantro, and broccoli. The problem with bolting is the vegetables quickly become inedible as the plant shifts its focus and energy toward producing flowers. You might notice that the taste of the vegetable changes, becoming more bitter or losing its taste altogether. Anyway, Megan did a great job. She goes on to talk about what you should do about bolting vegetables and then how you can prevent vegetables from bolting. So that was a great share in our listener community. In sustainability this week, One Green Planet shared an article that was called How to Start Thinking Like a Permaculturist for a Thriving Garden Year-Round. The suggestions include to learn humbly, look for sensible cycles in nature, affect efficiency, design holistically, observe, assess, and adjust. And then each of those are expounded upon. There were a number of things in the continuing ed segment this week. NatureWorks Organic Garden Center had a video of their expert Nancy giving the rundown on fantastic old-fashioned perennials. It's about a 40-minute video, but if you have time and you want to learn a little bit more about old-fashioned perennials, this one is fun and worth the watch. Gardenista had an article that was called Container Gardening, Sarah Raven's Seven Tips for Perfect Flower Pots. Her tips included restricting your palate, cramming them in, focusing on form. And of course, here she's talking about thriller, spillers, and fillers, incorporating things like perennial pots, which I love doing. And then she shared how to extend the season, create color zones, and lessen the workload. That's a great post. And then finally, Gardenista went on to do an article that was called Six Seasons, Required Reading for Gardeners. This post was by Ella Quitner, and I had talked about this book in last week's episode that I think it's something that you want to purchase. It's a great cookbook for gardeners. It's called Six Seasons, A New Way with Vegetables, and it's by Joshua McFadden. Anyway, in Ella's article, she completely endorses this book, and she says that the book has 225 vegetable-forward recipes broken up into six distinct growing seasons. And it's very timely for right now because he's divided summer into early, mid, and late. Anyway, it's fun to read this overview of this cookbook. It's on its way to my house right now from Amazon, and I'm excited to read it. In the how-to segment... BHG shared eight tips for growing dwarf conifers in containers. And I don't know about you or where you live, but up here in Minnesota, as I've been touring some nurseries in the area, I'm finding more and more nurseries that are carrying dwarf conifers. And for the most part, people are unfamiliar with these and not quite sure what to do with them. So this is a great article on how to grow them in containers, what to do with these guys. They're gorgeous. Wrapping up the how-to segment this week, Jamie Oliver shared a very simple guide to fermenting. He talked about the health benefits overall and then how to make sauerkraut. In the plant spotlight this week are two plants. The first is Bachelor Buttons, and the second is Solomon Seal. Both of those articles offer very nice overviews of those plants. In the news segment this week, there were five very different, very crazy, wild posts and articles that made their way into the segment this week. The first was a fun article that was shared in Nestorama. 
And it's about what happened to the Memorial University of Newfoundland's Botanical Garden. They were celebrating Canada's 150th anniversary, and they'd planted this tulip garden. And when they planted these bulbs, they planted it to resemble the flag of Canada. But then sadly, as the tulips were about to bloom, a moose came through and ate them. And so there was a picture of these gardeners in front of their munched on garden. It was kind of a sad little thing to see. But that made the news segment this week. Up here in Minnesota, buckthorn eating goats are debuting in Minneapolis parks this past week. Toward the end of March, these goats were released into parks with the goal of having them eat buckthorn. And the Minneapolis Park Board is hoping that the hungry animals will be a good alternative to using herbicides to treat invasive species. And get this, they're paying 33000 for use of the goats. Now, I don't know how they get the goats to only eat buckthorn and not some of the plants that they want to keep, but this is the strategy that they're employing. I'll have to learn a little bit more about it. And then I don't know if you heard about this story. It was on a lot of the news channels, but it's a story out of North Carolina. And there was a $500 million opium poppy field that was discovered behind a home. And it was kind of crazy how it was discovered because the police went to the house. They knocked on the door because they were looking for something else. And when the guy answered the door, he said, I guess you're here about the poppy plants. And that wasn't why they were there. So then when they went behind the house and they start looking, they see all of these poppy plants. In fact, they seized over 2,000 pounds of poppy plants that were growing on the property. Just crazy. And then in Fresno, California, nearly $1 million worth of stolen bees were recovered. In fact, Fresno authorities say they've uncovered the biggest beehive theft they've ever seen. So the police apparently got a tip about some stolen hives, and when they showed up at an orchard on the outskirts of town, they found this guy in a beekeeper suit tending to all of these beehives that were just kind of all over the place. And the police said it was like a chop shop of stolen bees. There were just lots and lots of different boxes. Get this, in total, detectives discovered 2,500 stolen hives belonging to 12 different victims. And authorities believe all the bees were stolen in California over the past three years. Some belong to beekeepers from as far away as Montana and Missouri. Interestingly enough, it's common for out-of-state beekeepers to truck in bees to pollinate California nut crops, which are a tidy source of revenue for the state. Almond farming alone contributed over $7 billion to the California economy in 2014. And then rounding out the segment is a post from The Telegraph. And the headline is, Giant Agave Plant Bursts Through the Roof of grade two listed greenhouse, dot, 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 again. This is a fun post by Sarah Knapton, 
And her post starts out so funny. She wrote, to allow one giant agave plant to erupt through the roof of a grade two listed greenhouse might be considered unfortunate, but to let two starts to look like carelessness. Sadly, custodians Phil and Janice Dades had just finished repairing the glass panels of their Victorian Italian glass house in Ramsgate, Kent, when they noticed that a second agave was starting to wake up. These plants can live for a hundred years and they bloom spectacularly just once in their lifetime before dying. In fact, most gardeners will never see the flowers. When I interviewed author Pam Pennick back in episode 555, we were talking about her book, The Water Saving Garden. She went through this. She had a beautiful whale tongue agave that she'd named Moby, and this thing started to bloom. And it shoots up into the air like 20 feet. And then sadly, after it blooms, it dies. So this is what was happening inside this greenhouse. And so to not only have one, but two agaves bloom, that was just absolutely incredible. But it was a crazy in the news segment this week. In the Dream Guest segment this week is a group of photographers, Richard Avedon, Jim Baylog, Susan Middleton, and David Litschwager. And what makes their work so spectacular is how they use the power of a simple white background. So, for instance, if you're taking a picture of a flower or a butterfly and the background is all white, without that distraction of a normal background, we can concentrate on the appearance of the subject. And that creates its own composition within the limits of the frame. It's an approach that personalizes, and it makes for very striking images. Anyway, there was beautiful floral photography happening here, all with a simple white background. And this piece talks about what you would need for a macro field studio, how to create this white background when you're shooting things like flowers outside. And there was a striking image of how they had set up to shoot fire lilies. And they said the only downside is the fact that you have to carry all of this gear outside to make it happen. Anyway, it looks really cool. And I'd love to talk to them about how they do it and some of their tips and tricks. In science this week, there were five posts. The first is a beautiful new see-through frog that when you look at this frog, you can actually see the heart pumping inside the frog. The frog is a new-to-science Amazonian glass frog, and it has skin that is so transparent that you can see its tiny heart beating in its chest. That was very cool. There was an article out of the UK that's talking about how disease-tolerance genes could give new life to ash trees in England. This is important because there's a fungal infection that has the potential to wipe out 90% of the European ash tree population. The disease is called ash dieback, and it was first identified in Poland, and it devastated the native ash tree population there. Then there was an article here locally that was talking about how scientists are planting 400 acres of Minnesota pines to survive climate change. The aim is to preserve northern forest species, not just the trees, but also the mosaic of plants and animals that rely on them to maintain biodiversity. 
And then as I was reading this article, I was thinking about this post that I had shared last week from Purdue University. And later on in the article, they actually referenced this piece. And that was this study that they had just released about 86 eastern tree species that have already started to migrate west in response to the increased rainfall in the central part of the country and north in response to higher temperatures. So that was pretty fascinating. Then the Huffington Post shared an article that's called, So That's What Curry Is, The Difference Between the Spice, the Leaves, and the Dish. And it turns out curry powder isn't even actually from India. So if you're a curry fan, you might have noticed that the term curry refers to many different varieties of foodstuffs, and it gets very confusing. So there are curry leaves, there's the spice, and then there's the general name of a type of stewed dish. So this article walks through all three of them. And then finally, NPR shared an article about two scientists with two different approaches to saving bees from poison dust. So this article is all about the fact that it's planting time in the United States and that farmers are planting corn and soybean seeds that have been coated with pesticides known as neonics for short. And despite attempts by pesticide makers to reduce this, some of the coating is getting rubbed off the seeds and blown into the air. And then honeybees and wild bees looking for food encounter traces of the pesticides, and then some are harmed. Now, what was fascinating to me about this piece are the things that these scientists disagree on and then their areas of commonality when it comes to pollinators and neonics. In the shopping segment this week, I have a number of suggestions for you. The first is to head over to Amazon and get your perlite. I add tons of perlite to my garden soil every year, to especially in my containers, to help keep the soil fluffy and light and make it easy for the roots to grow and aerate the soil. And my favorite product is the Planted Super Coarse Perlite, and I get it in the 100-liter bag, and it's about 60 bucks. But it's fantastic. It comes in this huge box, and I like to buy a lot of it because then I use a lot of it, and I don't think you can ever use too much perlite. I love it. And as I refresh my containers this spring, I know I'll go through the entire bag in no time. Also, while you're over at Amazon, check out the book Great Gardens of America. This has been on my wish list for a couple of years now. It's a book by Tim Richardson, and it's a hardcover book from September 2009. It used to be quite expensive. It was over 40 bucks when it was new, but you can now find used versions of this book for about 12 bucks, so that's great. Over at Gardener's Supply, There is a clearance sale going on on a number of items, but the one that caught my attention is the No Splash Quick Connect set. This used to be $15. It's now selling for $7.99. And what I love about it is that you can connect your garden hoses super quickly with No Splash by using this Connect set. So what you do is you install these innovative couplers, and instead of having to screw on your garden hose or your garden wand or whatever you're using, you attach these quick connectors and then you literally just pop them off and pop them on. You can install these onto up to three watering accessories and it eliminates trips back to the spigot to turn the water on and off. The set includes one female coupler and three male couplers. 
And here's the product description. It says outfit up to three watering devices for no splash installation. Unlike other quick connects, this one has an internal water stop that prevents leaks. Simply attach the female coupler to your hose and the three male couplers to your nozzle, sprinkler, wand, or other watering accessories. Now you can leave the water turned on and change out the accessories without getting soaked. This fits standard garden hoses. I love it. I know I'm going to get hooked on it, so I bought a couple. An inspiration this week are two posts. The first is from Gardenista. It's 10 garden ideas to steal from Spain. Great inspiration here, including reflecting pools, walled patios, archways. These were just drop-dead gorgeous. And then the last one was a fun one. It was a Chelsea Flower Show favorite, and it was a water hut. It was this little building that was made out of weathered copper for the frame and then surrounded with glass. And the goal was that you could go in this water hut and admire the scene from all aspects. Finally, in the quote segment this week, there are two. The first is from William Bryant Logan from the book Dirt, The Ecstatic Skin of the Earth. He said, how can I stand on the ground every day? and not feel its power. And then in keeping with the topic of today's show, Basil, I found an ode to Basil on the website Unboard Housewife, and I thought it was so clever. I wanted to share it with you. Here we go. Ode to Basil by Unboard Housewife. Basil, sweet basil, you are a true summer treat. Straight from the plant is the only way to eat your tender green leaves on caprese salad or penne. The uses for you are vast. They are many. In ice cream or cookies, you're an unexpected flavor. You make me creative and cause me to savor the warm summer air and my bare feet in the grass. I'm pondering ways to store you when autumn comes to pass. Well, that's the Garden News Roundup for this week's show. Just a reminder, you can get all of these posts with links and bonus content in your Facebook feed if you join the listener community in the free Facebook group, the Still Growing Podcast Group. I'd love to meet you there. All right, now it's time for the topic of today's show. I'm taking you on a deep dive into all things basil, and I'm calling this episode the Basil Mania episode. And here's a little analogy to illustrate just how much I love basil. If you can imagine that my garden was floating in the North Atlantic and it started to sink and I had to begin uprooting plants and tossing them overboard one by one in an attempt to stay afloat, the last little plant floating on my garden gate with me in the icy ocean would be my all-time favorite must-have or quit gardening plant, basil. You know, now that it's June, we're experiencing a nonstop whirlwind of cultivation in our gardens. And that's why it's important to prioritize the edibles that give you the most joy and the most satisfaction in the garden and the kitchen. Now, for me and many other gardeners, basil is easily at the top of the list for our must-grow edibles each year. A culinary herb, few things can top basil and its essential role in making pesto. 
In fact, it's tough to match the versatility of pesto in any menu. It's simple, classic, and delicious. And I like to say that at some point in your development as a gardener, you want to grow something that's just a natural home run. In the puts and takes of cultivating plants, basil offers an impressive list of wins for the gardener right from the get-go with its easy growing demands and nonstop giving nature when it comes time to harvest. This month, as I ventured back into my garden after my rotator cuff surgery, the first thing I did was plant basil in my kitchen garden. It's right on the deck, just outside the kitchen, and I don't know if it was my pent-up demand for gardening or what, but I went all out for basil. It's the only thing I planted in my planters on the deck this year. It's the first time I've had a total monoculture out there. I completely devoted the entire space to basil, relegating the other herbs that I like to plant to the southern garden, which is down the steps from the deck. And honestly, that crazy experience is what got me thinking about basil and doing an episode devoted completely to it. And I mentioned earlier in the introduction that today's deep dive into basil is my way of playing matchmaker between you and the king of herbs, basil. And I'm totally serious about this. Because at one point or another, we've all needed an introduction to basil and to pesto. So if you've never grown basil or smelled basil or tasted it or cooked with basil, I want to introduce you to it. In fact, I'd love it if someday you looked back and said, yeah, that basil mania episode, that's what made me want to give basil a try. And I've never looked back. And if you're already head over heels with basil like I am, I want to give you even more reasons to keep your passion for basil alive, to teach you maybe a few things about basil that you didn't already know. So for this Basil Mania show, let me give you a quick roadmap. I'll start with basil's history. It's a little weird at times, and it seems a bit disjoint from the way we view basil today, but it's interesting. Then I'll take you through some of the amazing varieties of basil, and I'll give you some ideas for what you can do with them. Just know that there are over a 100. I'm not going to go through that many, but there are definitely way more than I'm going to be talking about in today's show. Now, from a growing standpoint, I'll share how to grow it from seed, how to propagate basil. Honestly, it's so easy. Every one of us should be doing it. I'll also offer some basic cultivation tips and provide answers to some common questions about problems that folks can have when they're growing basil. And then naturally, I'll tell you about harvesting and storing all of your green gold, your basil leaves. I'll give you a quick overview of the known health benefits of basil, and then I'll wrap up with my favorite part of growing basil, and that's eating it. I'll share my pesto tips, and then I'll give you some pretty amazing recipes that may or may not incorporate pesto. Phew, and that's our roadmap. So let's get started. All right, I'm going to start out with a history of basil. Basil belongs to the genus Osimum, which is derived from the Greek ozo, which means to smell. And of course, that's in reference to the strong aromatic quality of basil. It's got a strong fragrance. 
It's a kissing cousin to mint. And sometimes the kids that have worked in my garden, when I have them smell basil for the first time, when they have absolutely no frame of reference for it, will say, hmm, is this mint? And I remember talking to Deborah Madison about that when I had my interview with her because we found that particularly fascinating that when you give someone a plant and they have no mental constructs around what that plant is, it's almost as if they can detect aromas they wouldn't otherwise be able to if they had a name for it or if they had experienced it before. So I'm always very fascinated when I expose student gardeners to plants for the first time and ask them to tell me what they think it is. And then I listen very carefully to what they're detecting. And oftentimes when they smell basil for the very first time, they're detecting that smell of mint. Now, I mentioned earlier in the show that basil is sometimes called the king of herbs, and that may have been derived from the Greek basilius or king. In France, basil is often given the name herb royale, which shows how positively it's viewed in France. Basil is native to Asia and Africa. And it's believed that it was brought from India to Europe through the Middle East in the 16th century and subsequently to America in the 17th century. Now, in terms of some of the cultural history around basil, there are some really interesting beliefs that people have had about basil over the years. The scorpion is historically associated with basil. People used to believe that they had to handle basil very carefully so that they wouldn't breed scorpions. In fact, oftentimes people were afraid to lift up a pot that would have basil growing in it because they were worried that scorpions would be hanging out underneath the pot. There was a Flemish doctor in the 16th century that wrote that he believed that if you crushed basil between two rocks, it would turn into a scorpion. And there was a French doctor, Hilarious, who believed that just smelling basil would breed a scorpion in the brain. There's a holy variety of basil known as Tulsi, and fittingly, it has the name Osamum Sanctum, and it's a sacred herb in the Hindu religion. In fact, for Hindus, basil represents protecting or protection of the family. And the Tulsi form of basil is regarded so highly in India that the British at one time used it as a substitute for a Bible when they needed people in India to take an oath in a court of law. So the British had caught on quickly just how revered that herb was to the Indian people. Now, I'll talk a little bit more about Tulsi when I cover varieties, which is coming up next. So just hold that thought about the holy basil, and we'll cover it now as we go through varieties. In terms of basil varieties, there are so many to choose from, each with its own special flavor. They'll have their own foliage color, aroma, and size. Every gardener seems to be partial to one type or another. And basil is so versatile. It makes excellent container plants, and it's also easy to tuck into your flower beds. You can choose from green basils or purple basils that can offset the colors that you're using. You can plant the dwarf varieties about six to eight inches apart, and then the larger varieties about a foot to 18 inches apart. 
And of course, I like to plant mine in just these containers that are right on my deck, right outside my kitchen door. So I'd like to begin by reviewing the sweet basils. These would include Genovese, large leaf, mammoth basils. Certainly the most common cultivar of basil is sweet basil or the Genovese basil. And I always say you can never have too much Genovese basil. This is the classic basil and it will always be my favorite. And of course, as we're going through these different varieties, keep in mind that basil is a tender annual. It's very sensitive to cold. So up here in Minnesota, we have to wait till late May or early June to plant basil. And if you've ever planted it prematurely, if it's too cold outside, you'll see your basil just shrivel up and die. They do not like the cold. So every year I wait well beyond the last frost date to plant my basil. Now, the mammoth basil offers exactly what you would expect, mammoth leaves, huge leaves. These leaves can be as big as your hand, and it gives you the ability to use large quantities of basil with a single plant. Mammoth basil is often a favorite pick for pesto. The leaves are large, they're crinkled, they're light green, and you can even use an entire leaf as a standalone on a sandwich. There's also a variety called Italian large leaf. It's a sweet basil with larger leaves than most basil varieties, and it will give you tons of flavor. Now, there is a sweet little minuet basil that's considered just a charmer in terms of the basil garden, and it's spicy bush basil. It has these tiny little leaves on small mounded plants. It's perfect for pots or for lining the garden along the edges, and you can cleverly deduce from the name spicy bush basil that the little leaves have an intense flavor that adds a punch to sauce or soup. Now, to add to their charm, these basil plants are a soft green. They're about 8 to 10 inches in height and width. Since the leaves are little, I'll often have younger kids harvest them because their little fingers are perfect for harvesting those leaves. But I absolutely love the compact shape of this basil, and I grow it every single summer. And because the leaves are so little, you don't even need to chop them. They can be put in whole into whatever dish you're using them for. And that also is kind of a charming aspect to the spicy globe basil. The next variety is cinnamon basil. Now, this basil has a delightful cinnamon fragrance and a spicy flavor if you choose to cook with it. And this plant is tall. It can be almost three feet tall. And it's got these dark purple stems and then these gorgeous purple blooms. They look like tails that come out of the green leaves, the, the tops of the leaves. It's one of my absolute favorite basils to grow for a number of reasons. One, I love the height. And then I love the, the little purple plume at the top, especially if I'm going to add it to an arrangement. It's just really cool. You're adding that fragrance, but then that just amazing combination of the basil leaves and then this purple plume seed pod at the top. That's really, really neat. And then it's a great one to throw in as a garnish for like a dessert. So you could do a pie where cinnamon might be appropriate, like a peach tart or something like that. And then, of course, fruit salads. Now, along with the wonderful flavors of the sweet basils, 
There are basils with gorgeous flowers and foliage. And here I want to direct your attention to the purple foliage basils, such as dark opal, purple ruffles, purple petra. All of these are used as attractive ornamentals in the summer landscape, and they add interest to cut flower arrangements. Let's take these purple varieties one at a time, and I'll tell you why each of them are a favorite of mine. The first one, purple ruffles, is a favorite because it's so frilly. The edges are kind of jagged. The purple leaves have a very intense fragrance. It's very, very beautiful in a garden. It's kind of feathery looking, and I like it because it adds another dimension to the landscape. It has the same flavor as the opal basil that we'll be talking about next, and it's a nice size plant. It's about 16 to 20 inches tall, and the leaves are about 2 to 3 inches. Next up is the dark opal basil. The dark opal basil is a favorite of mine. It was the first purple basil that I tried in my garden. It's absolutely gorgeous when you're putting together a cut floral display. It's a little spicy if you add it into a salad or use it as a garnish. It can also be made into a pesto. It's very attractive if you use it as a border along the edges of your beds. And then the flower on it is so sweet. It's a little pink flower and it's a gorgeous complement to the purple leaves. So unlike the sweet basils that send up a white flower, on the purple basil, you're going to get a pink flower. And another idea for using dark opal basil in your garden is to use it next to plants like zinnias or salvias because they kind of end up with those bare legs. And if you put the dark opal basil in front of them, they're a perfect contrast to one another. And the dark opal basil has that dense plant mass that's going to hide the bare legs of the zinnias and the salvias. Now, I love the dark opal basil if I'm eating a turkey sandwich. I'll put the light turkey meat on a ciabatta bread, and then I'll put the dark opal basil next to that, usually with some green pesto. It's just a nice flavor combination, and it just looks so attractive. The light turkey meat and the dark purple basil is just really, really pretty. So if you're having a luncheon or some people over and you want to kind of impress them, dark opal basil on a turkey sandwich looks amazing. Ooh, and don't forget the mozzarella cheese. I always put mozzarella cheese with that as well. Anyway, the dark opal basil is a favorite with cooks because it's tender. It's a very nice, supple leaf, just like the sweet basil that we talked about earlier. So if you're familiar with that, the dark opal basil has that same kind of very tender leaf and it smells great. So if you want to throw it in a salad or you want to use it with a Bloody Mary, however you want to use it, you'll enjoy using dark opal basil. Now, there is a darker basil, a deeper purple basil that's called basil amethyst, and that's also a gorgeous purple bloom. And I mean to tell you, holy cats, you see purple petra basil with its huge leaves in a container with ornamentals like hot pink geraniums or tropicals. It is stunning. Another way you can use these purple basils is to garnish plates of tomatoes. So imagine this deep purple Petra basil paired with yellow tomatoes or green tomatoes. It's absolutely drop dead gorgeous. So 
pair it with some type of more exotic looking caprese salad with a rainbow of tomatoes and you'll be so thrilled with the result. Anyway, let me tell you a little bit more about it before we move on. Purple Petra has rich, glossy, dark purple leaves. It grows from 12 to 24 inches in height and it's almost a foot wide. It's got kind of a licorice flavor, but it's very, very mild. I know you can get it in seed form from Botanical Interests if you're looking for it and can't find it. And I also like to plant it in the garden next to eggplant. I like that contrast. Another variety of basil that's very popular is Thai basil. It's licorice scented, just like the purple Petra. And what I like about it is it has the purple stems and then the green leaves. And the variety I'm thinking about in particular is the Siam Queen Thai basil. Thai basil is very ornamental. It's got these purple stems and then dark purple tinged foliage and the flower spikes are purple as well. The plants grow about 18 inches tall and they do have that licorice kind of clove flavor and that just goes so well with stir fry or any type of meat dish that you might be putting together. Great fragrance, great overall color. They're very pretty. Next up are the citrus-flavored basils. So there are a variety of lemon basils. There's lemon-scented, there's lemon, there's sweet danny. All of these are the lemon-scented basils. That basil called sweet danny, I've grown that before. And it's very vigorous, and it, it has a very, very nice lemon smell to it. Of course, anything with that citrus smell is usually a deterrent to insects, so you can rub it on your skin and use it as kind of a natural mosquito repellent. Now, how you can use the citrus basils in cooking is you can add them to fruit salads or just regular salads. You can also add them to pasta or any type of marinade or fish. I like to use them like freshly clipped and I'll add them to kind of an herbal tea. So even just putting water in the microwave until it's hot and then pinching off the lemon basil and letting it steep and then drinking that, it's very refreshing. It's very kind of cleansing feeling. It's very nice. And then there's also a lime basil. This one has small, compact green leaves with the white flowers that you would see in the sweet basils. And the lime basil I also like in the fish and chicken dishes. You can add it to things like lemonades as a garnish or margaritas, things like that. Now, I think I mentioned that there are over a 100 varieties of basil, and I just want to go over a few that people maybe are not as familiar with. The first is basil pesto perpetuo. It is absolutely beautiful, and it's so easy to grow, and it actually grows almost like a small columnar shrub. That's what I would think of it as. It's got variegated foliage, so it's a mix of kind of white and green. So the freaky thing about this plant, the standout feature is the fact that it grows upright in this column format, and it can grow up to four feet tall and 36 inches wide. So this can be quite a hefty basil plant. And because of that, it has a kind of different ornamental value in the garden. 
Now, this one does not flower. So you've got this basil plant here with the Perpetuo that's going to produce the foliage that you're going to use all season long. So you're going to get lots of product from this one plant. Now, in terms of placement, think about this basil for maybe more compact spaces or smaller gardens where you would be using containers because of that columnar form. This basil is ideal for that. And then instead of doing what I do, which is plant so many different types of basils and all the little individual plants, you can probably get by with one or two basil pesto perpetuos. And just imagine if you had them in containers, like two containers flanking the entrance to your garden or to your front door, however you want to use them. I think with that columnar shape, they could be really attractive and you could do some underplanting around them as well. I see on Burpee's website, they say one to two plants per person, four to six for making pesto. So factor that in. Another basil that's really fun to grow is Christmas basil. And what's great about Christmas basil is that it combines the best of both Genovese, the sweet basil, and then the Thai basils. So what you end up with is this plant that's got big, glossy green leaves, super shiny, with the beautiful purple flowers, and then a very fruity holiday aroma which is why it's called the Christmas basil. In fact, this variety is often used in cuttings like bouquets, especially for weddings during the holiday season. Now, next up is the holy basil. And I told you before that I was going to talk about it a little bit more in depth. So I'm going to do that right now. The holy basil is that revered plant in the Hindu religion that's often referred to as sacred basil or tulsi. Now, what I think is interesting is basil is often referred to as the king of herbs, while tulsi is often considered the queen of the herbs for its restorative and spiritual properties. So tulsi has a number of different spellings, but it's been used for thousands of years to support responses to stress or natural detox increase energy, restore harmony, that kind of thing. And because Tulsi has this property of helping the body handle stress, holistic medicine regards Tulsi as an adaptogenic herb. Adaptogenic herbs have been used to promote and maintain wellness and to support the body's reaction to stress. Holy basil is very interesting. There are a lot of posts about it on social media. People write about it as an ancient herbal remedy for stress relief. People drink it as a tea and add it to foods for anti-inflammatory and antihistamine purposes. And some people even use it for insomnia. Now, in terms of which types of basil are best for growing inside... Think about incorporating things that are compact or high yielding. So this would include basils like that Siam Queen, that Thai basil, the Pesto Perpetuo. There's a basil called Fino Verde. It's one of my favorite salad herbs. The leaves are small and easy to use, and it's great in containers, and it also is very compact. 
There's a basil called Dolce Fresca basil. It doesn't get leggy, so that's fantastic. That's another reason why that one's really nice. And when you look at that Dolce Fresca basil, it looks a lot like the Genovese, except it stays much more compact. It does not get leggy. It looks great in containers, and it was the 2016 AAS winner. So it's very productive and delicious. All right, so that covers the varieties of basil that I'm familiar with and that are some of my favorites. And now let's move into growing basil from seed. And I have a fun clip that I'd like to play for you. It's from episode 535 with my friend Beth Billstrom. She's the blogger over at morethanoregano.com. And she also has a fine art photography business. But we had a blast speaking last summer about all kinds of things related to gardening, and in particular about starting to grow basil indoors in the spring. So I wanted to replay that clip for you so that you could hear Beth describe how she does it. And just a little forewarning here, Beth and I got on so famously. We had such a blast talking to each other. It was as if we had known each other for years, and I think that'll come through in this clip. Now, you mentioned growing basil from seed. I, I love basil. I, I buy it started. I buy the Bonnie plants already started from the big yeah. box stores. And mm-hmm. I usually buy a couple flats at a time. I'm not happy unless I have about 20 plants at all times. And that's good because basil loves company. So that's good. Yes. Now, what <laughs> um, what's it like growing it from seed? How patient do you have to be? You don't have to be very patient. In fact, growing basil from seed is so easy. You could take even just, if you just wanted to grow it as like little microgreens, you could even take just like something, a little dish, kind of like a pie plate and put, um, you know, your soil in it, sprinkle your seeds over it, sprinkle a little more soil and keep it moist. They will pop up very quickly. And if you want to just use them as microgreens, then you can kind of just uh, snip those off, use them in whatever you want and just... Uh, replant. And that's a good way to keep basil growing over the winter. Um, because if you try to do a full basil plant a lot of times over the winter, it gets kind of spindly and it'll just like shut down on you. Okay. Um, so that's a great method to try if you would like to have fresh basil over the winter. Mm-hmm. I like that. And it's a great thing to do with the kids too. It's a great thing to do with the kids. And once you start growing basil, you now they in in many of the garden centers are really offering a lot of different varieties. But just like anything that you grow from seed, um, you always have more choices available to you if you decide to grow from seed. So any of the large seed companies, if you go on their websites, they'll have lots of different types of basil that you can try. Anything from Lime basil to um, spicy basil, Asian basil, purple basil. I mean, there's just so many different varieties that are really fun to try. Um, and if you do enjoy that and want to put them in your containers or in your gardens, a lot of those types of basils, when they flower, they will also attract a lot of the different pollinators that you want in your garden. So the bees and even the hummingbirds, um, things like that, they'll attract. So really great thing. Well, that's good. Now, when I use this plate method and I'm growing the basil, I'm going to call it my Beth basil. 
<laughs> Which might not be the same as holy basil, but we know. <laughs> but it's very close. And I'm sure yeah. your husband would agree, right? It's very, very close. Yeah. Well, listen, I love to do that. I'll get um I'll get a, a plant or something from somebody at a plant sale. And All right. um, yeah, and one of my first plants that I bought at a plant sale was from this sweet old lady named Doris, and I bought her dahlias that she oh. so so loved. And of course I said, Doris, what are these called? And she's like, I have no idea. And I said, well, they're my Doris Dahlias. So one of the first garden tours tours I was in, people were like, oh my gosh, those Dahlias, what are they? I said, well, those are Doris Dahlias. So so, <laughs> and now they're looking through all these catalogs saying, I cannot find a Doris Dahlia for the life of me. Where did that woman get those dahlias? So now I'm going to do the same thing with my basil. It'll be like, no, I, I started on a dinner plate and it's called Beth, <laughs> Beth Basil. No, on a pie plate. A, pie, a pie plate. It needs a little bit of, yeah, it needs a little bit of depth. <laughs> All You'll right. be spraying and spraying it with water and saying, "Why won't these things grow?" <laughs> I can't get this to grow. I got to talk to Beth. I got to talk to my grower. I got bad bath basil here. Where <laughs> yeah. won't it grow? Bad batch. Bad batch. <laughs> oh, honestly. Well, hey. Speaking of um, speaking of growers, where do you get your seed? Where do you like to get your seed? Okay, I uh, I like to get my seed um, from a number of places. I do use Johnny seeds. I use Renee seeds, uh, Renee Garden seeds. Yeah. Um, I do also. This is one of the lovely things about what I do is um, I do work with seed uh, growers and breeders, and so I do get to trial a lot of the new seeds that are coming out, and um, you know, and so that's really fun. So some of the you know, you might work with um, a bow, you know, horticulture or um, seeds by design. They don't, they don't um, provide seeds right to market. But if you go through Johnny's or Renee's or some of these other places, then you will get their seeds as it kind of goes down into the retail retail line. But um, but Johnny's is a good one, like I said. Renee's is a good one. Those are your. Favorites. I have some burpee. Yeah, burpee seeds. I do use burpee seeds. Um, they have a great organic line of seeds that I really like. So do you have little pots all over your house or all over your uh, garden outside with, <laughs> with uh, herbs in them? I can't imagine that you're confining yourself to this one triangle planter. No, no, I'm not. In fact, during the the winter, like as we, winter goes into spring, um, it gets a little comical because, you know, someone from my family will open up a cupboard and there will be, you know, chives germinating because chives germinate better <laughs> in the dark, you know, so <laughs> chives will be germinating down there. Um, and of course, then I do have my groin station downstairs. I'm just growing basil, you know, and, um, uh, in so, a pie plate, in a pie plate, <laughs> in a pie plate. <laughs> but you know, that's as a home gardener, you just have to be pretty innovative if there is a really good light source and that's something that you can when you buy seeds um you know buy those seeds that have good directions on the back i always try to tell people that because it'll tell you how it germinates best not all seeds germinate the same and so some seeds need more light than others some seeds germinate best in dark and then they want you to move it to the light and so 
you know, you have to, when, when you're growing indoors as a home gardener, you kind of just use those little innovative spaces. You know, my college sons will come home from school and sometimes there'll be plants on their windowsills of their bedrooms. They'll be like, do I have to share my my <laughs> bedroom with the plant? This, Yes, you do. <laughs> You're like, honey, I know you can't close your shade, but just dress in the dark. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> Oh my gosh, I love it. Well, that was fun. I loved my conversation with Beth Bilstrom of More Than Oregano. And I have another clip that I'll play a little bit later on when we talk about pesto, because of course, Beth and I could not resist talking about pesto. But let's do a quick overview of growing basil from seed. As Beth mentioned, basil is easy to sow from seed and it's relatively quick to germinate. Of course, don't forget that basil is very sensitive to the cold. So if you're transplanting seedlings in the spring from indoors to outdoors or have plants in the ground, you need to watch those spring temperatures and then cover them or move them if needed. Now, one of my favorite things to see on social media in the spring are all of the pictures of people's basil seeds popping up after about four or five days. The plants are very sweet when they come up. They have two little leaves that are at the very, very top. And if you're growing the purple basil, those leaves will be purple. And if you're growing the green basil, the leaves will be green. I had a second cousin post pictures of his basil. And one of the things that kind of ensued from that post was the fact that using heating mats is often a good thing to do to get a head start on growing basil indoors. And of course, if you don't have good lighting, you'll need to add fluorescent lighting. But to get the soil to an ideal temperature for speedy and successful germination, consider using a heat tray. And when gardeners do not heed the warning that basil is a tender annual and does not like cold, they usually end up posting pictures of their basil on social media and they'll say, oh, my basil's sulking or my basil is not looking good. And it's just a factor of putting it outside too soon before the temperatures have a chance to warm up. In fact, a good rule of thumb for most folks who want to grow basil is to make sure that it's getting at least six hours of sun a day and warm temperatures above 50 degrees Fahrenheit at night and during the day. Now, in addition to sowing basil from seed, a cutting of basil will easily root when placed in water. And this method is so easy so simple to do, I'm continuously surprised that most gardeners don't do it already. And what I'm talking about here is taking cuttings. This wonderful little trick will save you tons of money. In fact, you won't believe how easy it is to generate an abundance of little baby basils just from one basil plant. I've been creating new basil plants using this method for years and honestly, every time I show a visitor to my garden this little trick, they are blown away. Because, of course, who couldn't use more basil? And I think this is a skill most gardeners should be familiar with because so many recipes call for multiple cups of basil. It's not uncommon to see a recipe that says you need six to eight cups of basil or a quarter pound of basil. And that is a lot of basil. And if you figure that even if you're going out to buy bonnie plants, that those plants are about $4 a pop, it can add up quickly. 
So what are we going to do? How are we going to propagate it from cuttings? Basically, what I do is when my plants get to about six to eight inches tall, I will chop off the top third of the plant and then cut it up into little pieces. Seriously, one plant can give you up to 10 or 12 baby basil plants. And to me, this is really no different than starting a new cutting of my pothos houseplant or a Hoya houseplant where you just take a cutting and you put it in a vase of water and you wait for it to root and then you transplant it into a pot with soil. It's that simple. So when I'm taking cuttings, I like them to be about three inches tall And then just like when you're arranging a bouquet, you strip off the lower leaves before you put it in the vase. That way they don't get all mushy and make the water turn yucky. And then you just want to put that vase in front of a windowsill that gets a lot of light. And I usually have between six and eight cuttings in a vase at one time. I switch out the water every couple of days to make sure that it stays clean. And then within a week, not even, you'll start to see roots forming on the bottom of the plant. You'll see all kinds of roots, little tiny roots that are forming. They're very robust. And every day, more and more are going to pop up. You're going to see them. And I let the roots grow until they look pretty substantial. They're about an inch to two inches long. They look really healthy. And the whole process takes about two weeks from the beginning to end. And so then I will take those cuttings and I'll pop them in the ground. And the next thing you know, I'll have a brand new basil plant. It's that simple. Now, just to forewarn you, sometimes when you take cuttings of basil and then you put them in the vase, they can kind of look a little sad and sulky for a little bit until they get acclimatized to their new environment. That's totally normal. And also, don't forget that when you're putting a cutting in the vase, those are not the basil plants you want to be harvesting from. They're trying to grow roots. You don't need to be snipping basil leaves off of those poor little cuttings. If you need basil, make sure that you go out to the garden and harvest it from the plants that are already out there growing and doing well. Leave these plants to be working on growing new roots. That's very important. You don't want to take away from any of that energy. Now, just a few words about cultivating basil outside. Make sure that your basil is in well-drained, moist soil with a neutral pH. I always compost on top of the bed before I even begin planting in it. So that's that's something that I do at the beginning of the season. And other than that, I don't add any fertilizer to the beds where I'm planting basil. And of course, basil wants to be warm. Basil enjoys the sun. But I have successfully grown basil on the western side of my house and the eastern side of my house where the basil's not getting scorching sun all day, but where it's getting partial sun. And those basil plants obviously grow a little bit slower. So if you're slow to harvest or you have things that are kind of getting in the way of you getting out to the garden to harvest, sometimes that's a great way to grow basil in partial sun. And then all of my basil is on drip line, so it gets regular watering throughout the week. And a basil plant is very water intense. It's very juicy. So they definitely need water. And they're a great indicator plant. If they're drooping, you're in trouble. You need to get them water right away. 
So don't stress them out like that. You won't be happy with your plants. Make sure you're getting them regular watering. Now, in terms of pest control, basil is wonderful. It's a great aromatic plant, and a lot of aromatic herbs like basil, fennel, and lemongrass, just to name a few, are natural deterrents for garden pests. In fact, basil is known to put off tomato hornworms, so when they're planted next to the tomatoes, it can help keep them healthier and happier. And then over the past few years, there's been research that has been talking about growing basil near peppers. In fact, the pepper seeds tend to sprout faster. They germinate, they sprout faster, and they have happier, healthier plants than if you just grow peppers alone. And scientists think that this type of companion planting is working because the basil plants emit sound vibrations near the peppers. And in general, from a companion planting standpoint, A lot of people plant basil among other herbs and vegetables with similar lighting and watering needs. So tomatoes are great. Parsley is great. The peppers are a good option. And some people even say that tomatoes taste better when they are next to basil. Now, there can be a few problems with basil. Basil is sometimes bothered by aphids or Japanese beetles. It can be bothered by slugs. But really, the biggest problem for basil is poor drainage. It does not like to have wet feet. It will start to kind of rot and turn to mush if it's too wet. In fact, when I'm buying plants in the store, I look for basil that's not completely saturated. That's not something that basil enjoys. And at the same time, I often see basil in stores that is just massively dried out. It does not like that. So even though you may have a plant that looks healthy, if you pick it up and you feel that the pot and that the soil in the pot is just absolutely bone dry, that can stunt its growth. That can definitely start the plant to go into shock and start shutting down. And again, remember that if you are overwatering or underwatering your plants, you're kind of creating the perfect oasis for many plant diseases, including fungus. Now, if you end up getting Japanese beetles on your plant, you can just take them off the basil plant with your fingers and then drop them into soapy water. You can cover your basil plants with row cover. That'll deter a lot of insects. Sometimes grasshoppers will eat on basil. And slugs, of course, love basil. So if you have slugs or snails that are enjoying your basil more than you are, you can go ahead and use products like Sluggo or Snail Bait, and they're totally safe. They'll take care of the snails or the slugs, but it'll have to be reapplied if it rains or if you wash it out when you're watering your plants. Now, sometimes your basil leaves can get little black spots on it. And a lot of times people think that those black spots are a fungal infection. But in reality, a lot of times it's just due to cold that's nipping at the leaves. Now, that's not to say that the spots can't be from a fungal infection. So if that's the case then it's important to keep the plants trimmed so that they get lots of air around them and that they have plenty of sun. You want to make sure that you're watering at the base of the plants rather than saturating the leaves. And don't forget that basil plants are very fast growing. So sometimes what I'll do if the leaves are bothering me, I'll take off the leaves that are unattractive. And in no time, the basil plant has grown way beyond that point and looks healthy again. 
So a lot of times basil plants can get through black spots on their leaves if you address the issue quickly. Now, another problem people often ask about is why their basil leaves are curling. Sometimes this can mean that your plant is not getting enough sun, so move it into a sunnier location. Sometimes it means that you're over or under watering, so try to even out and standardize your watering procedure. Of course, check for diseases, check for mildew, check for fusarium wilt, check for pests. Those things are really the key stressors that lead to curling basil leaves. All right, we've talked about growing and propagating and cultivating and addressing some of the problems that you can encounter if you're growing basil, although for the most part, year over year, my basil plants have been pretty problem-free. And now it's time to talk about harvesting and pinching back basil. Now, if you're friends with lots of gardeners who love basil, you will see the annual pictures of them sitting at a table with a massive mango basil harvest. And those are always impressive pictures to see. And basil is basically a pick-as-you-go kind of herb. You basically go out and you harvest what you need when you need it. And if you have a ton that's ready to be harvested, you can just go crazy and clip out a bunch. And a good rule of thumb is to harvest basil in the same way that you would mint. You want to snip a stem just above the point where two large leaves come together. And the more regularly you clip and prune your basil, the more bushy and rounded your plant will become. And of course, the goal is to harvest basil before the plant bolts, before it sends up a flower. But if your basil gets away from you, you can always just pinch off the flower. They're actually edible, by the way. And once you take the flower off, the plant can direct its energy to growing tasty leaves again. In general, I tell people to harvest no more than two-thirds of the plant, so leave a third of the plant behind. And of course, as you're harvesting, you can use some of those cuttings to propagate more basil, to continue to sow, to succession sow your basil throughout the summer. So basically, think about your basil as being a little magical, because where you cut one stem off, you usually get two new ones to grow back. And if you do a great job of pruning your basil, your plants will produce for a very long time. So in general, I would tell you that you can begin harvesting basil anytime just by snipping fresh leaves whenever you need them. Make sure that you harvest the whole stem by cutting just above a pair of leaves because they're always together in a set. Once you do that, you'll get two stems in its place where you put the cutting. You want to make sure that if the plant bolts, if it goes to flower, which means it's going to seed, that you pinch those flowers back to keep the flower from going to seed. And then that will help prevent your basil from getting woody or losing flavor. And then just keep thinking about harvesting your basil from the top down. So you want to go from the top of the plant to maybe the second rung of leaves and then go just a little bit above those leaves and cut the stem right there. Don't start harvesting from the sides of the plant. Resist that temptation. 
Bottom line, if you prune your basil correctly, you'll end up with a more robust and happy plant. And if you don't do that right, if you don't prune your basil correctly, it's just going to grow straight up, get very leggy, and go right to flower. So you can prolong the life of your plant by pruning and harvesting on a regular basis. Now, some basil aficionados think that the time of day that you pick your leaves matters. They want you to go out and harvest your greens at a very specific time of day, early in the morning before sunrise, when the temperatures are cool so that the plant experiences less of a shock will have less wilting and basically be overall happier about the fact that it just got a haircut. Now, I've never let the time of day stop me from harvesting my basil. And honestly, usually with the kids in the morning, I'm running around so much. Harvesting basil is the last thing I'm thinking about. And generally, I harvest my basil when I need it. So if I'm making a caprese salad for supper and I want basil, we'll go out at that moment and get the basil. Or if we're making a salad, that's when we'll get the fresh basil. But just bear in mind that experts say the time of day that you pick your leaves does impact your plants. Now, sometimes people write in that when they're harvesting basil with their fingers, their fingers will turn black. This can happen when the plant juice gets on your fingers or under your fingernail when you're pinching that stem back. So to avoid this, just use a kitchen scissors or wear gloves. In any case, if you get that on your hands and your hands have turned a little black, don't worry about it. It goes away in a few days. And just a reminder that basil is not the only herb in the kitchen garden that benefits from regular pruning. The same principles apply to other herbs, including thyme, lavender, rosemary, pineapple sage, oregano, or rose-scented geranium. And just like with basil, when you prune these, you'll see tiny new leaves forming next to the stem. Basically, the more you prune, the more your plants grow. All right, that wraps up pruning and harvesting, and now it's time to talk about storage. There are so many ways to store basil. I want to highlight just a few that I've talked to other gardeners about. One lady that I talked to just chops up her excess basil and then packs it flat in a Ziploc freezer bag. She squeezes the air out of it, writes the date down, and then just puts it in the freezer. And then when she wants it, she just snaps off a chunk in the winter and adds it whenever she wants. Many people use the blender. They'll take their basil leaves. They'll add enough water so that they can puree it all together. And then they put it in ice cube trays to freeze it. And then they'll transfer those cubes to another freezer bag, another Ziploc freezer bag. And then they use those little cubes throughout the winter. Some people do the same thing, but instead of using water, they'll use olive oil. And still others will add garlic to that concoction so that they have basil, garlic, olive oil cubes for cooking. Now, Beth Billstrom from More Than Oregano likes to infuse some basil in vinegar to use in recipes. And she adds it to tomato sauces that she puts together to preserve for the winter. So there's another use. One unique way that I read about is to make frozen basil cigars. And what she does is she dips branches of basil in boiling water for 10 seconds to blanch them very briefly. And then she removes the leaves and she stacks them up about five deep. Then she rolls the leaves like tight little cigars, wraps those little cigars in waxed paper, and then freezes them in airtight containers. 
Now, as for me, I make pesto with my basil, and so I preserve my pesto. I'll store that. I'll talk about how I do that in a little bit. And then that's how essentially I use my basil throughout the winter. In terms of health benefits, basil is an excellent source of vitamin K and manganese. It's a great source of vitamin A, vitamin C, and copper. It's also a good source of iron and folate, magnesium, calcium, and omega-3 fatty acids. Research has shown that basil helps with DNA protection. It has antibacterial properties. It has anti-inflammatory effects. And it's heart healthy. In ancient Rome, Pliny the Elder recommended basil tea as a remedy for nerves, headaches, and fainting spells. Basil blends well with citrus oils, marjoram, lavender, rosemary, and peppermint. I found a recipe online that uses sweet basil, and it's for morning spray. And it's a combination of basil and grapefruit. And the recommendation is to spray this blend around the house as you're getting up in the morning. So you have a spray bottle and you put in distilled water. You add 10 drops of basil, 10 drops of grapefruit, five drops of orange, and then you shake it up and then that's your good morning sunshine spray. Some people like to use it for headaches. They'll blend it with lavender and peppermint oil to help reduce a headache. All right. Well, in addition to the health benefits that people may or may not know about when it comes to basil, most people, when they think of basil, their thoughts often go directly to one amazing food item, and that's pesto. And before I begin to tell you about how I make the pesto or how others have told me about making pesto through the years, I want to play one more clip from my interview with Beth Bilstrom, where we get a chance to chat about making pesto with basil. This year, I really honed in on what do I use and what are the kids like? And probably yeah. our number one thing is pesto. We okay. love to make pesto. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And we went to a class, Emma and I did, with Jeff Sandino. He's a chef in town. He does a lot of okay. community ed classes. And uh-huh. he used to cook at Filio. Remember Filio in Uptown? It was this... Uh, restaurant that stayed open to like four in the morning or something insane. So when okay. you went to mm-hmm. a late movie, you know, you could actually go out and, and they <laughs> had this fantastic banana dessert that was to die for. I think it was oh, on fire. It was oh. great. Really, really great. But this guy used to work there and a number of different high-end restaurants in town. And he has a fantastic pesto recipe that I fell in love with. And so I just, I just make batches and batches and batches of pesto. Oh, we are a pesto family, too. I mean, you can just not have enough basil and pine nuts and all yes. of that. And oh, my so, gosh. So I've always just, you know, made it with the olive oil and the basil and, you know, pine nuts. Terry Chaffer is up here in Maple Grove, and she has a store um, that used to be called The Oilery, but it's an olive oil bar. And now mm-hmm. she left that franchise. She started her own. It's called Love That Olive. I think she sources mm. it from the same spot, but she has a, her most popular olive oil is called Fior Fiori, I think, okay. but it stands for mm-hmm. like a buttery olive oil. So that oh. is the olive oil that I get to make my, cause then it doesn't taste, um, no, there's like a bitterness. Yep. Kind of heavy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. This one is light. And very nice, very buttery, very kind of almost creamy. Oh. And so I use that. We use pine nuts. We use a little bit of garlic. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. Kosher salt. Put the we put the salt in last. Parmesan Reggiano. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. That sounds awesome. That's something that I want to explore more is the different types of oils and just how they really bring out the flavors of the, your homegrown seasonings like that, you know, whether it's your basil or your thyme or tarragon, because you can, you know, infuse all of that in oils and really make some great dressings or, like you said, pesto or use it in so many different ways. So. Yes. I think the kids think I'm some type of garden magician. I've got my younger two especially. <laughs> they have a very loose grip on where these plants are coming from. <laughs> you know, because I'm not growing all of them from seed. Obviously, I need to get my pie tin going. I'm going to go buy some pie tins after this interview, Beth. But um, <laughs> mine, mine will have an Oreo bottom first. I'll have to take that out of there. <laughs> then, then I will use them to plant seeds in. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> but the kids think it's fantastic. You know, I've taught them how to go out and harvest the basil and right. and harvest right. the lettuce and all that. And they think it's, they just think it's fantastic. I, so. know. I know. And then it's great to fill in with your farmer's market because I'm kind of like you. After you garden for a, a little bit of time, you realize what grows, what you eat a lot of, what you yeah. can kind of just, you know, get fresh somewhere else. You don't have to grow everything. I no. don't grow everything, yeah. you know. You know, you just kind of make the decisions based on what you like, right? Okay, so with that introduction, let's start talking about how to make basil pesto. For some of you who have made this before, this will probably be old hat to you, but if you've never made it before, let me introduce you to a very good basic recipe that I learned from this local chef that has community ed classes, and I just love him. His name's Jeff Sandino, and he does a great job. So this is his basil pesto. It makes about three-fourths of a cup. And your ingredients are a cup of loosely packed fresh basil. This would be the Genovese basil. This is what I use. So you use the leaves. I don't use the stems, although if you get a few stems in there, it's not the end of the world. A fourth cup of olive oil, extra virgin olive oil. A half teaspoon of chopped garlic, or you can eliminate that if you don't want that taste. A heaping tablespoon of pine nuts. You want them raw, not toasted. A half tablespoon of chopped walnuts. These add a depth of flavor to the pesto. You can also use sunflower seeds if you'd like to use that instead. A third cup of freshly grated Parmesan cheese. Now, the best Parmesan would be Parmesan Reggiano. I like to get it on sale around Christmas time. The second best would be Grana Padano cheese. And then the third best would be a Parmesan, a domestic Parmesan that's buttery, no bite to it. And then finally, two tablespoons of freshly grated Romano cheese. And then you can add kosher salt to taste. So what you do is you're going to take your basil and the olive oil and you're going to put it in the food processor or your blender and you're going to blend it until smooth. That takes about 20 seconds. Then you'll add the nuts and process that until smooth. That takes about 20 seconds more. You'll start adding your cheeses, process that for another 20 seconds, and then finish with the garlic and the salt. You don't want to over-process the garlic or it can become too strong. So you can taste it as you go and adjust the salt and the garlic as necessary. And that's it. That's basil pesto. And then what Jeff told us to do is you lay out a piece of saran wrap and you put your basil pesto on the saran wrap kind of in a log shape and then you roll it up into the saran 
and twist up the ends. And then I put it in a Ziploc freezer bag. And then when I need basil or that basil pesto flavor, I just break off a hunk from that log. And that's how I get my basil. And I make gobs of this stuff over the summer, just so we have enough to get us through the year. Now, when I was collecting tips on this, here were some of the things that had come up when I started talking to people about pesto. The first is some people get their pine nuts and their Reggiano cheese from Amazon. So look into that. That might be a good option for you. Some people like to make their pesto with toasted pecans. Some people have suggested adding just a little lemon juice to the basil puree to help the basil keep that bright green color. In fact, in one of my cook's magazines, I ripped out a section where it was talking about keeping basil green in pesto. And here's what they said. There's no getting around it. Pesto looks the best right after you make it. With time, it can oxidize into a drab army green. And that's true. And then they said, there seems to be as many suggested techniques for keeping pesto bright green as there are cooks who make it. We tried four methods, including using vitamin C powder, which left our pesto with an odd sour taste, as well as parsley, which does contain the antioxidant ascorbic acid, just not enough to make a big difference. So here are two methods that work. So the first method is blanching. How it works is that blanching deactivates the enzyme that causes browning when basil leaves interact with oxygen. So what you do is you blanch basil leaves for 30 seconds in boiling water. You basically dip them in 30 seconds in boiling water. Then you scoop it out with your spider or with some type of tong or something, and you shock it in ice water, and then you dry the leaves and carry on with your recipe. That quick dunk causes minimal flavor loss. The other method is adding lemon juice. Lemon juice contains antioxidants like citric and ascorbic acids. And the recommendation for how to use it is to add four teaspoons of lemon juice per two cups of packed basil. And it says here that lemon juice lends a pleasant acidity to the pesto. So I'm going to be incorporating that this year to keep my pesto fresh and green. Now, there were a lot of suggestions for how to use your pesto. Some people like to have pesto on toast. They like to eat homemade bread with pesto kind of as a dip. Of course, people love it on white pizza with ricotta cheese and mozzarella cheese. Some people eat it with ricotta cheese mixed together. They just eat it just that way. They put some salt and pepper on to taste and they eat it right out of the bowl. Now that's some hardcore pesto love. A number of folks say that they use pesto in place of mayo on sandwiches in the summertime. Here's a pasta idea. Take pasta, squash, zucchini, pesto, fresh grated Parmesan, in that order, mix it all together, and you have a lovely summer's pasta. Other folks thin it into a vinaigrette, and they use it in salads. They add dollops to any baked summer vegetable combination or add it to soups. A number of people did say that they like to use pumpkin seeds instead of the walnuts. Other people have used hazelnuts. Some people even suggested adding a little mint to the pesto to brighten it up. And of course, basil being a kissing cousin to mint, that kind of makes sense. In addition to pumpkin seeds, some folks substitute sunflower seeds. That was Jeff's suggestion. Others have made it with toasted almonds and so on and so forth. Now, there was a lovely braided pesto bread recipe that I came across 
that looks absolutely beautiful. It's by bakedbyrachel.com. And if you can imagine a braided bread that has pesto woven throughout it, kind of like a marble loaf, it's absolutely glorious. This would be a gorgeous summer bread. I'm going to make sure I get this in the Facebook group this week. You guys are going to love it. Susanna Feltz on the Bonnie Plants website shared her recipe for her best basil pesto sandwich ever. It includes chicken breast, lemon, rosemary, olive oil, Tuscan bread, and of course, pesto. So that one will go into the Still Growing Podcast group as well. And then last but not least, this is a category I call, if not pesto, then what? So if you're not using your basil for pesto, what would you do with it? Suggestions include using basil loose in salads with romaine, mint, onions, and cucumbers. Some folks use chopped basil with just garlic and olive oil for a dairy-free variety of pesto. Of course, you can make a caprese salad with tomato slices and mozzarella cheese and then basil leaves along with balsamic vinegar and olive oil and salt and pepper. You can puree basil, olive oil, and onions in a food processor and then add that to tomato soup. That's fantastic. And for recipes that call for chopping up a lot of basil all at once, you can use the chiffonade cutting technique. And what you do here is you stack your leaves, you roll up the stack, and then you start cutting the leaves across the end of the roll to create these thin ribbons of basil. And then you just kind of mess them up a little bit. And that's the chiffonade cutting technique for basil. And then finally, I came across a few other recipes that just call for basil. One is a basil berry smoothie that includes strawberry, raspberries, basil leaves, kale, and then sweetened vanilla almond milk. That looks fantastic. And then SeriousEats.com has a fantastic post that's called 22 Basil Recipes to Use Up Your Summer Bounty. There's a great potato salad recipe in here. There's a recipe with watermelon. Basil and watermelon go very well together. And then they round it out with some stir fries and more drink recipes. Anyway, lots of great ideas here. Well, that's it for the show today on Basil Mania. I think we covered it all from the wacky and wonderful history of basil to growing basil to propagating and harvesting it. And of course, using basil in the kitchen for pesto and so many other wonderful recipes. Anyway, I hope this episode made you feel more excited to try growing and cooking with basil, especially if you're new to basil. I'm so glad I can make the introduction for you. And if you're already a crazy basil grower like I am, I hope you now have even more reasons to keep your passion for basil alive. I want to thank my team at Podfly Productions for helping me produce this episode, Eric Begay, my fabulous editor, Ein Kadena, my copywriter and my show notes creator, and David Gregerson, my project manager. And just a reminder, I'll have all of the generous information that I shared on the show today, all about basil mania, over at my website at sixfootmama.com. That's the number six, F-T-M-A-M-A.com. Just click on the Still Growing Podcast tab and the show notes for today's episode will pop right up. I want to thank my listeners that are in the Still Growing Podcast group, the listener community. I love seeing your posts about your gardens and the things that you're curious about. And I love it when you share great articles and information with the group. And of course, I'd like to invite you to participate as well. 
So if you're interested, the next time you're over at Facebook, just type in Still Growing Podcast Group, and our group will pop right up. And then just request to join, and we'll admit you into the group. I also want to make sure to thank the special listeners that are part of the Listener Advisory Board. They are Beth Engel, Denise Pugh, Denise Gardens in North Mississippi, and is a contributing writer to Mississippi Gardener Magazine, Amy Von Atchen, Patricia Chandler Newport, Patricia Gardens out of Kego Harbor, Michigan, and is the owner of Backyard Urban Gardens, Deb Gibson, and Peggy Ann Montgomery. Peggy Ann is the brand manager over at American Beauty's Native Plants, and she was also featured in episode 553, where we talked all about native plants and why you should be incorporating them into your 2017 garden. I hope you get a chance to grow or plant or propagate or harvest some basil this week. Have a great week, everyone. Still Growing with Jennifer Ebling is a SixFootMama.com production made in lovely Maple Grove, Minnesota. Still Growing is a weekly gardening podcast dedicated to helping you and your garden grow.